0: up, my friend, and welcome to The Dan Go Show. I'm your host, Dan Go, coach to high-performing entrepreneurs and professionals. And what we do at The Dan Go Show is tease out the best practices of the highest performing entrepreneurs in the world while sharing cutting-edge, evidence-based information to help you become healthier and wealthier. So if that's what you're into, you're in the right place. Click that subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts so every time one of my episodes goes live, you'll be the first to know. Robert, it's an honor. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, Dan. It's a beautiful day here in Los Angeles. It's going to be rainy tonight, but it's it's. I'm doing fine.
0: Awesome. I well, a little. Someone told me that you're a massive Lakers fan, so I just wanted to ask you, like, how do you feel about the that's, Lakers that's, that's, reaching that's the second it, round? That's
1: putting it mildly. <laughs> I literally bleed purple and gold. I'm so old that I can, my first game that I went to in the Lakers was in the sixties and I actually saw Jerry West and Elgin Baylor play uh, at the old sports arena. So you, you you don't know anything about that, but I grew up with West and Baylor and Wilt Chamberlain and then the Kareem and magic years. And then the Shaq and Kobe years were probably the, the apex of it all. Mm. And, you know, uh, it's taken it take me a little bit longer to warm up to the LeBron era, but this new iteration of the Lakers since the trade that happened like about six weeks ago, I'm loving it. Yeah, I was so happy last night because, Amazing. you know, I like the Warriors. You know, Steve Kerr and I both went to the same high school, and I, I don't remember it from high school, but I like their style of play. But, man, it's time that they go away. and this would, It would be so sweet if the Lakers – could get to the finals against the Celtics. Wouldn't that be awesome?
0: That or the would be ne- great for the NBA and just uh, NBA fans in general. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, something about this, in specifically where uh, this is. This is actually a question from one of my Twitter followers, and I wanted to ask about Phil Jackson. Is there is there any part of where you saw Phil Jackson in his coaching capacity? that you could see within one of your books, either it be Mastery, The 48 Laws of Power? Um, because to me, Phil Jackson is like, just just one of the most quintessential legendary coaches in the NBA.
1: Well, I actually read his book, 11 Rings, I think that's the correct title, uh, for research. I believe I was researching it for Mastery and I also looked at it for Laws of Human Nature. Um, yeah, he was. He's absolutely a brilliant psychologist, um, and he's not. He's he's a good tactician. Although he's, tactics and strategies are so important for him because he played with the triangle offense, which basically runs itself. But mostly, he was a supreme motivator. So I often think of um, my book, "The Thirty Three Strategies of War," in which I talk about. Um, the army and how you organize it and what makes a supremely good leader and a motivator, what we would call a man management back in the day. And Phil Jackson definitely fits the bill because he did something that I think has a lesson that transcends basketball, which is he looked at each player on the team as an individual. and And he adapted his way of approaching and dealing with them depending on their personality. So what he did with Dennis Rodman wasn't the same way that he would approach Michael Jordan or Scottie Pippen. And the same thing on the Lakers, Shaq and Kobe were completely different personalities. But he was so sensitive to what, how to motivate each player and how to bring out the best in them. And also, he understood that there's more to it than just basketball. It's the, you know, sports... A a huge amount of sports is the mental aspect. I mean, it could be even the the majority part of it. Yes, it's important to have talent, but the ability to focus, right, and concentrate and be in the moment is often what separates a good player from a great player. And he emphasized to the extreme, you know, even had them meditate every day in, in practice, in being able to be in the moment and focus, focus, focus. Because so many times you watch a basketball game or in any sport, and you can just literally see a player losing a focus in the moment, right? Making some bonehead move. So his sensitivity to the psychology of each player, to how do you unite a team, create a cohesive unit together, and his overall emphasis of philosophy, which kind of transcended the game, which goes into... Other higher things like American Indian folklore and the circle and the hoop. I mean, yeah, I could go on forever. He's, he was absolutely brilliant as a coach. He was not a good uh, general manager when he went to the Knicks because that's a different skill set and there's a lesson there to be had as well. So he had his limits and maybe by the end of his reign, people were not listening to him as deeply as possible. But he ranks to me as, as the greatest basketball coach ever.
0: And you mentioned something in there, which is uh, meditation. Um, Right now, at this current moment, are you still meditating about like 40 minutes a day?
1: That's exactly how much I'm meditating. Yes, every morning. And I'm trying now to increase it to the point where I'm thinking about it in my day-to-day affairs, which is really the point you're supposed to reach, where if I'm exercising, I'm going into it anyway. I, I do. Yes, I'm still doing that.
0: Okay, and then when you're trying to exercise it on a day-to-day basis, uh, does this somewhat relate to the sublime where you're in the moment of what is happening? Or is this trying to be as clear-minded or as just like without any thought whatsoever going through your mind?
1: Well, I do um, Zen meditation. Um, It's it's a very... In fact, I was just reading recently a writer who said that you can't really even call Zen practice it's called zazen, um, meditation, because you're not literally meditating on anything. You're trying to go into a different a different usage of, of the mind and of itself. Um, but, yeah, if you reach uh, the state of enlightenment, which in Zen is called kensho, the Japanese word which I might be butchering, um, it is utterly sublime. It's, it's the ultimate in the sublime because in that moment of enlightenment, somebody trying to come in here in that moment of enlightenment it might be my cat in that <laughs> moment of enlightenment you use you lose a sense of boundaries of ego and you know you feel like oh yeah there he goes <laughs> and you feel yeah. that one you know with with the universe is kind of a dissolving of the self and you know i'm the, in the book the sublime i'm attacking all sorts of different aspects of it how it could penetrate our everyday experience Because the thing that I, there are a lot of books written about the sublime as a philosophical concept or something in the art world or 18th century philosophy. And they're not practical, they're very academic. And I want to make this book something that hits you in your everyday consciousness. As you're doing your work, as you're doing your chores, as you look out the window, as you relate to your partner in life, to your boss, everything in life can be seen as potentially sublime. And in, in Zen meditation and in Buddhism, they have a word called Tathagata, which I believe might be the trans- Sanskrit word because it doesn't sound Japanese, um, which means things as they are. And so just kind of relating to the world as it is, not through any kind of abstract thinking, just kind of relating to exactly what is going on in the world without thoughts in a kind of an immediate sense and feeling, you know, just what the world is like in this very moment right now is, to me, the ultimate Sublime feeling. And I, I don't know, I don't want to go too deeply and take up all your time on this, but when I, I wanted to write this book on the Sublime 16 years ago or so, and I kept putting it off. The 50-cent book kind of interrupted me on and on and on. And my original idea for it was I was going to go travel to Tierra del Fuego and go see where Magellan was. I was going to go to the Gobi Desert. I was going to go you know, scuba diving with dolphins, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, all the cliches. And then um, I had my stroke about four, four four and a half years ago, and I can't do any of that. I, can't, I can barely walk now. I mean, I still walk, but I can't hike. I, can, I can't travel. And so the book had to change itself, and what, how it changed itself was – um, and, and it probably makes, makes it a better book is the sublime doesn't require these extraordinary adventures. It's around you in everyday affairs. It's around you right now, Dan, as you're sitting in your office, listening to me, if you can just kind of get inside the moment and understand, you know, how, how everything is kind of connected and get outside of the banality of our day-to-day lives and understand that there's something just, awesome and weird about even being alive in itself, which is one of the chapters in the book itself. I could go on and on, but I'll shut up now.
0: I, I really wish you could go on and on. Cause I have, I have a, a few questions about this, sure. especially, um, especially around the, the stroke that you had about four and a half years ago. And then how has that transformed your relationship with the sublime? Uh, knowing that you can't travel anymore. You can't go out. How has that transformation been for you?
1: Well, uh, on several levels. I mean, number one, as I mentioned before, I've had to kind of reduce the scope of my of my thinking, and I had to sort of see what is... I don't write a book unless I experience it firsthand. Otherwise, it comes across as kind of dead and just a bunch of words and ideas. I literally feel what I'm writing about. So when I'm writing about war strategy i'm getting so deeply into it i'm identifying with napoleon or I did the 50 cent book etc 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 so i have to make the book feel alive within me and in order to do that for this book not being able to swim with dolphins and all that other stuff i had to make i had to find it in everything around me you know and so the other aspect of it is is I had a, a near-death experience. I mean, I came very, very close to dying. Um, and I'm very lucky to be here talking to you without any brain damage or even just literally being alive because um, I was in a car. My, my wife uh, kind of saw something going on, and she basically got me to the hospital right away. So I, came very, I could have been alone or it could have been a matter of an extra minute. And in that moment where I was in a coma and I lost consciousness, And then emerging from it, very strange sensations and feelings and thoughts came to me. Um, And in the the irony of it is the last chapter of The Laws of Human Nature is about confronting your mortality, confronting your death. And this occurred two months after I wrote that chapter. And so the kind of intellectual idea of confronting your mortality, um, which is a very interesting idea, was now made something very physical to me, right? I, I could feel it in my body, in my bones, all sorts of weird sensations, a taste in my mouth. Everything kind of was transformed and changed. And so having a touch, a taste of death, a taste of your mortality is the ultimate sublime experience. It's, it's like feeling what is like what it's like on the other side, and when you do that, and if you study the research on people who've had near-death experiences, most of them much more dramatic than mine, the, the idea is that when you come back from it, everything in your day-to-day life has changed. You don't look at anything the same way. The world has this added intensity to it that it didn't have before because you know what it's like to lose, to feel that life slipping away from you. So when I look out now and I see the sky or I see the ivy on the side, it has a different effect on me than, than before, than before the stroke. So uh, the book is, you know, now as I'm writing it, I'm writing it currently as we speak. Each, as you know, my method is to, is to write stories, to introduce them. And I go so deeply into the stories that I make them feel like they're coming alive within me, like I'm actually experiencing it. The last chapter was about animals and other species. So that required a different kind of step or leap of imagination. But when I sit down and I'm, it's that part of the day where I'm getting into the story and I'm literally putting my mind in, in, in the space of other people or other species or other experiences I'm I'm living that sublime as I'm writing the book, so I'm hoping it translates to the reader.
0: Well, how do you visualize and put yourself in that position? Um, I know at Fifty Cent, you basically lived with them for a few months, yeah. uh, which must have been an incredible experience in and of itself. Um, so how do you how do you like transport yourself to these uh, stories, like Napoleon, or? Um, there was like one with the fighter pilot as well. I forgot what his name was. Uh, in Mastery,
1: Cesar Rodriguez, or
0: yeah, yeah. But, but how do you put yourself into these uh, these characters and feel what they're feeling?
1: Well, you can never exactly feel what another person is experiencing, right? I can't ever really know exactly what it's like to be Dan. You know, I'm not inside your head and your childhood and your experiences and all that. But you can go pretty close to it, I believe. And that's what makes a great writer. That's usually what makes a great novelist. They get inside their characters so deeply that they make that character come alive, whether it's a novel or a movie or anything like that. And so for me, I, I, I've always been somebody who's, who likes to observe people on a very deep level. I'm very attuned to their nonverbal cues that they give off to the, to the tone to their emotions that they're experiencing. I'm I'm picking up all the little signs and I'm constantly practicing in my head. What is it like to be them for that moment? You know, like I'll be in a supermarket and I see somebody that looks could be totally normal or whatever, but I'm going, Hmm, what is it like to be that woman shopping right now and with her life, you know, as an immigrant or whatever, I'm doing that with everybody I see because it, I don't know. It just—it's just my life as a writer, you know. So when I'm writing a story, as you say, Fifty Cent was different because I was with him so long. I accumulate so many details. I'm like um, I'm like a, a detective, picking up. So right now I'm writing a particular story in which I I wrote re- reading about five or six different books on the same pair of people, and I'm looking for little details that reveal how they thought, how they felt, what their world was like, what was going on inside of them, I accumulate so many tiny little pieces of this mosaic, as I might put it, that a a picture begins to emerge, and I can begin to sort of feel what it might be like in that moment. And then the other weird thing is, this is almost kind of slightly woo-woo, so please excuse me here, but I often have the sensation, because I read a lot of history, that I'm actually there at that moment. Just for a split second, it's like, whoa, I I, I kind of feel like I'm there in the 12th century. Or I, I sort of feel like I'm transported to ancient Athens or to the battlefield with Napoleon. It kind of washes through me that like, hmm, there's a sensation there that's, that's hard to put into words, hard to verbalize and is very sublime, where you feel like you're actually traveling through time. and You've entered this moment. And I'm actually writing a chapter on that experience because I'm not the only person that's had that. People who write a lot about history um, often say that they have the sensation that they're actually living in that moment and I want to analyze it. So I I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I'm using all of my observational skills and my ability to empathize and feel what other people might be feeling.
0: So back in... uh... 2012, um, when you were talking about religion, and you actually said something where it's like, I'm Jewish, but I don't have a hardcore spiritual practice. I'm not a hardcore atheist. I'm sort of how Einstein was. He wasn't a believer in the Jewish God. I'm intrigued by the sense that there's something there. How would you say your relationship has transformed since then to that thing that we cannot necessarily explain?
1: Well, um, it it's never really, it's not like I've had a complete transformation and I am no longer would say what I said back in 2012. Um, it's more like it just got a little bit tweaked, a little bit heightened. I'm a little bit closer to how I've always felt, which is I've never had like a, 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 a supernatural experience in my life. I've never had like, wow, that is God or, or this is this is some transcendent moment, although I've had close things similar to that. Um, so I'm not saying they don't exist. I don't I never would say that there's no such thing as God. I don't know, I'm not that arrogant. I can't say. I've never had it personally personally experienced it. What I have experienced is there's something much larger than myself, something very intense, something cosmic, if you will, that if I connect to and I feel, it, it does change me from within now. Maybe that's God. If you want, I don't know. I don't want to put words on it. I can't really, I can't really say, but it's never, it's always been sort of the same different versions of, of the same kind of experience. You know, like I remember when I was in college, like 3000 years ago. And, um, I took, I took drugs, I have to admit, and I've admitted it before, right? And um, something would click in my brain, and, and I still remember to this day these you know, dozen experiences that I had of, wow, there's this something really strange about being alive. It's, it's a really weird moment to kind of think about yourself just in that context aware that you're, you're breathing, you're alive and how weird the world looks. And those experiences were, were so memorable that I can, I can feel them to this day. I can, images pop in my head of, you know, walking along the beach in Mendocino, California and and feeling these things. Um, And it's the same thing that happens over and over again in my meditation, in, in my near death experience, in, in writing the chapters, as I say, and getting inside those stories, um so uh, the, the great thing about about Buddhism which uh, is you know Zen is part of is that it doesn't believe in a transcendent God it's inside it's inside of every single individual you know I I hate to quote it because it's I'm a Western and it sounds weird when a Westerner talks about things from the East but um, So, you know, Buddha is is, is alive inside of every person, inside of every little thing that you see, right? It's inside of every insect. They call it Buddha nature. It's in everything in the world. It doesn't transcend it. There's no God up above, distant from it. It's inside of us. It's inside of everything around us. And that encapsulates more of how I see spiritual practice.
0: Amazing. And then uh, I did see the interview where you, did talk about psychedelics and it seems to be uh, having an emergence right now, especially with uh, mental health. Um, I know that uh, I, I remember hearing that your favorite psychedelic was peyote. Was, <laughs> yeah. was there a reason for that? Like uh, well, as opposed to like the other ones?
1: Well, uh, I hate to admit it. We tried everything, although we at the time we didn't have things like ecstasy we didn't have all those kind of chemically made, well, we had LSD, so I shouldn't say that, but we didn't have. So, I, but beyond that, I tried everything you know, hashish, mushrooms, LSD. I don't know if I'm leaving anything out, but we tried, if it was there, we tried it. And then at the time, you know, where I was in Berkeley at the time, peyote was kind of the, the big exciting thing because. It's very exotic. You know, they have mescaline, which is the synthetic version of peyote, but to actually have the buttons, they're called buttons, from the cactus and to see them in your hand and how weird they look and how disgusting they taste and how you have to, it's like a ritual. You have to kind of cut it up so you can't taste it. And then it kind of makes you a little bit physically sick. But the so it, there's this whole kind of ritual behind it that makes it different from anything else, and it was kind of beautiful, very physical experience. But the uh, actual experience itself it, is beyond any of those other hallucinogenic drugs. It was so intense and so I, I don't know how to explain it unless 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 you've experienced it personally. I mean, I've recently for for the sublime book I've been reading uh, Aldous Huxley you know, who wrote the book, The Doors of Perception, kind of the quintessential book about psychedelic experience. And he did mescaline. And he kind of described the superiority of it in in a way that's much more eloquent than I could ever do.
0: Mm. And, uh, well, actually, I remember I was in um, Mexico and I met, uh, I think it was Aldous Huxley and he started some community of uh, people who would do uh, psychedelics together, all these adults. And then all the children would live in this community as well. And I met one of the children. And um, I had I had some stories from him saying that it was just like a madhouse. There was like no rules whatsoever. It was crazy. He actually has... That, that child has a shout-out from Aldous Huxley in like one of his books. Really? Uh, but yeah, yeah, it was a, not a shout-out, but uh, saying this book is for um, such and such or dedicated to. Oh. So, but yeah, that was, that was very interesting. And, um, one of the things that, uh, I was wondering, which was, uh, the back in 1995, like when you first started, uh, as a writer at Fabrica, uh, you met a, a book packager, his name was Jost or Juiced Elfers. Um, and you pitched a book to Elfers, which would later become the 48 laws of power Uh, You noted that this was like the turning point of your life. Now, one of the things that I've read in your books that has had an impact on me was the idea of the inner voice kind of directing you towards whatever specific outcome that you're after. And it may have like no rhyme or reason, but it just directs you. I want to ask, like, what exactly was your inner voice telling you at that time when you were about to... Kind of take this monumental task of creating one of, one of the like the most uh, known books of the 20th century.
1: Well, we're already going back. Um, geez, 28 years ago, to that day that he and I were walking in Venice in Italy, and I pitched the idea of the 48 Laws of Power. So I have to go back quite a few years to get inside the skin there. But I do know that he asked me for ideas for books. And I gave him a couple of ideas, some of which didn't really um, resonate with him. But then I started pitching this idea about power. And as I was pitching it, I could feel in myself that it was right, that it was clicking. I could draw, as I gave him this idea for a book about it, I could draw upon all of my experiences, the 60 different jobs I've had, all the horrible, psychotic, malevolent, manipulative bosses in my life, all of their weirdness, all of my history. I could draw on, I could be myself. I could draw on everything that I've experienced. And I remember telling him a story that I had heard years ago from a Frenchman about <clears throat> Louis Fourteenth and his finance minister. It ended up being the story that starts the 48 laws of power. And I told it to Yost. His name is Yost, by the way. That's how you pronounce it. Mm-hmm. I told Yost, um, this is to give you an example, here's a story of of, of power. Um, and you got really excited because I had something right there in my brain to just illustrate it. It just felt right. And the only reason it the reason it felt right, Dan, is up until then nothing had really felt right. I had tried so many different things. I had tried Journalism. I tried screenwriting. I tried writing novels. I wrote an en- for an encyclopedia. I helped write, uh, help screenwriters with their projects. I did research. I worked. I tried so many different things, and nothing ever clicked. Nothing ever felt right. It wasn't like, in order to write an article for a, a magazine, I had to be somebody else. I had to put on a mask. This was one moment where I I was myself. I could be myself. I could tell stories. I could, you know, because I'm kind of fascinated by power and the dark side of human nature, as you can tell. And I could bring all of that together. And I could, you know, I could access this thing that had never really been accessed before in any of my work. It felt right. If that's a that's a voice to me, you know, it's not literally someone speaking in my head. You know, I'm not that crazy. But it, it felt in the moment wow, this is it. This is right. And when he said at that time, he really loved the idea. And what he would do is he would pay me to um, write a treatment. And if he liked the treatment, you know, he would then pay me to write the book um, until we sold it. When I went back to Los Angeles, I go, God, this is it. It's like my get rich or die tribe moment. Mm -hmm. I got to make this book work. And I put everything I had into it you know, because I knew that this was it. This was, this was the moment. So that's kind of, I mean, I could go on and on about that voice inside of me years before I wrote the book, telling me not to give up, not to give up, mm-hmm. move on from this one horrible job, try something else. Keep, Don't give up Robert, even though I had moments of despair, that was sort of the voice that I was feeling. And then when it finally came together, it was like, all right, this is it. You got to make this happen.
0: And then when the book came out, uh, it, it came out to a great deal of popularity and scorn at the same time. Um, how was it like going through the, the situation where you come out with your life's work and then at the same time you are also getting attacked for coming out with your life's work?
1: Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't really attacked that much. Uh, I expected more because it's a it's, it's 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 kind of a scandalous book if you read it closely. I mean, it's saying things that most people wouldn't talk about. It things that are taboo, you know, about manipulation, etc. Not all of the laws. Some of the laws are very common sense and very more gentle. But I was expecting people to to you know be much much harsher on me than they actually were. There were a few articles. I remember that New York Magazine had an article about it and the, and the headline was um, Chicken Soup for the Soulless, you know. Mm-hmm. So that stood out in my mind as kind of what well, these – so the harshness of it was or when people were, were, were criticizing the book, they were kind of admitting that it, it was very entertaining, very well written, they enjoyed it. But I don't want to, it's too ugly for me. There's something really ugly about the book. That's as far as they went as as opposed to like attacking me personally. Mm. I remember um, I was on the O'Reilly factory. If you can remember back in the day when that Bill O'Reilly, that was like my first big television thing. And I got on the show and he goes, you know, Robert, I really liked your book. But on the other hand, I absolutely hated it. I hate I hate those kind of think those subjects. I hate those politics, et cetera. And then he ended up kind of – the, uh, the irony of it was he ended up manipulating me masterfully during the interview, right, and setting me up. So somebody who doesn't like manipulation was actually a master manipulator. You're but, telling him his secrets, basically. You're yeah, exactly. away his secrets. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So um, I had some negative press. But actually I was expecting much worse than that, which was, you know, to this day, I can't really explain it. I think if I wrote the book now with our cancel culture and everything, I think I would have had something much worse than I did back then.
0: How do you feel about the culture that is going on right now at this very moment where, um, books are being taken away from libraries? Um, cancel culture is rampant, uh, obviously the West seems like it's fighting itself um, in, in your opinion. And also with all the history that you've, that you've read, uh, what do you make of all this?
1: Well, these things go in cycles, you know? Um, and one thing you can notice in history is in periods that are chaotic. Um, and there've been many periods in history like that um, in the East and in the West, people become much more conservative in their thinking and they start freaking out and they want to try and control things. And they react because chaotic moments, unpredictability, change is very difficult for human beings to process. We're essentially, in some ways, conservative creatures, have habitual creatures. We like things to be kind of the way, the way that we're used to them. And so we're living in a very, very chaotic moment, one of the most chaotic moments in history. Something weird is going on. We all sense it. We sensed it. The pandemic kind of brought a lot of it home, but we sense it in social media, in technology, in the way people are relating to each other, the way institutions, we no longer respect them. There's something changing going on in our politics, in our business sense. And because of that, there are people in the world who can't access it, who can't handle it. Some people thrive in chaos and they're actually become brilliant entrepreneurs, brilliant writers, brilliant artists, etc. But there are a lot of people who can't handle chaos. They can't handle change. They can't handle their lives being disrupted. And they react. And their reaction is, I want to control everything. And on the right, that means, okay, any books that have like, speak of anything kind of woke which is their big dirty word we've got to like get them out of our libraries right we have to and then you know the odd thing is they're accusing people on the left of, of cancel culture but they're and then of course it's obviously happening on the left very much as we see in universities to make to be fair about the whole thing and so it's not a question of right versus left it's a question of people on either side, who can't handle change, who can't handle chaos, who can't understand that we're going through something radical. And what you want to do is you want to understand it. You can't control the pace of change in this world, you as an individual. You can't control what is going on in technology to a large extent. It's going to happen, right? So instead of like reacting and getting all negative and closed and and pinched about the whole thing, What you want is you want to open your mind to it. You want to go, there's opportunity here. This is an extremely exciting moment. Things are shifting. How can I exploit it? How can I find a way to get my foot in there and make something interesting and brilliant, et cetera? How can I use it to my advantage? That's the difference between somebody who wants to cancel everything and another person who's got a kind of an open spirit and is going to create something out of it. So, it's normal in a time like what we're going through, where you're going to find a lot of people getting all closed and pinched and trying to control things. And I don't, I, I look at it in a broader sense as if I'm looking at this 300 years from now, and I'm looking back at 2023 from the year 2323, and I'm going, wow, that sounds good, 2323. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at it from 2323, and I'm going, yeah, I understand. You know, they they were going through this. This is why it happened. It's not like, don't take it personally. Don't, Don't get freaked out about it. Just understand this is a natural phase in the cycle of history.
0: Amazing. And with the advent of technology right now, so we know that AI is becoming more prevalent in our society, people. And kind of like based on what you said, it's like, our responses to AI will actually be based on our degree of whether or not we can deal with change or not. Now, in your opinion, like seeing how advanced, or I don't know if you if you're at all close to this at all, but you know, with uh, with how advanced AI is becoming, um, people are starting to outsource. Well, they've been outsourcing their thinking to to Google a lot, but now they're outsourcing their thinking to AI. Um, wh- what, are your opinions and thoughts on artificial intelligence and where exactly do you say, do you maybe see ourselves maybe a hundred years or 300 years in the future, uh, interacting with AI?
1: Well, um, you know, I don't like to appear stupid and sometimes I, I probably do appear stupid and talking about things that I don't understand is very dangerous for me. So I'm not a scientist. I don't know. I've been acquainted in, in a very kind of minimal way with AI going back, you know, when I started writing mastery and people were talking about it, but I don't understand it really deeply. And I haven't interacted with it on a personal level. I haven't gone to chat GPT, for example, etc. So when I talk about it, it's I'm going to be revealing my own biases and my own prejudices, which is something I never like to do. Um, but I'll, I guess I'll fall into that trap for the moment. Um <laughs> You know, I think there is something when it comes to like writing, which is, you know, the big freak out about chat GPT and about schools and students using and researchers, etc. The thing is um, when, a, when somebody writes a book or a text or an email or anything, a letter, etc., cetera, they're bringing their own personality into it. And even if it's like the most boring bureaucratic speak Whenever I see an email or anything, I sense who that person is. I can feel their spirit. I can feel their repressed nature. I can feel their friendliness. I can feel that they they're, they don't really want to interact with me. They're trying to get rid of me. I can feel it. And when you read a book, the personality of the writer is in there. They're in between every little line. You can read it. You can feel it. You can sense that they're an incredible narcissist who's in love with their own language, etc., or, no, they're very deep thinker who's really trying to get outside of themselves and understand it, on and on and on. The spirit of a person infuses their work. And when I see things that I feel are mechanical or soulless, I can kind of sense it. And what I've read from ChatGPT, and I've had friends who kind of put in things for it to show me, like poems about Robert Greene or what the 48 Laws of Power would be like from ChatGPT. It has for a moment the sense of a human being. It seems, it seems interesting. It seems logical and weird and and kind of uncanny, like a robot's doing this, but it's lacking that sense of a spirit. There's no individual behind it. It feels soulless. It feels mechanical. It's the same thing when you hear music that kind of has a drum machine right? And it's all, you know, created by a computer, as opposed to live music, you know, when someone's actually there on the drums, actually creating the rhythm. One is alive and human and the other isn't. And so we have a kind of a fear of, of the human element, which is growing in our culture, which, as I said, I'm revealing my biases right now as I speak, and I'm contradicting but I just told you earlier about being open to change. It's not like I want to ban chat GPT. I would never think of that. What I want is to, I want to open people's eyes up to the idea that what we create as humans is actually superior to anything that a machine can create. Human consciousness, as I'm going to be explaining in my book now, is the most complex, the most mysterious, the weirdest thing that has ever happened in the history of the universe, as far as I know. I don't know what's going on on other planets, but as far as we know, it is so weird how we're how I what the process I told you earlier about, where I can get inside other people's minds, and I'm not alone in that. A lot of people have that. Every human has had moments like that. Is is so strange that no machine could ever, I believe, ever replicate. Now there are people who are going to deny that who say they will reach. That moment, the singularity, or whatever you want to call it, where machines will actually have consciousness and feel. So I could very well be wrong, and I won't be alive when that happens, so what do I care? But um, I just want people to appreciate the human element more, and that was the main part of mastery. So my fear is we're losing a sense of what it means to master something, to be brilliant at a field, to, to bring the human element of what happens with 20 years of deep diving into a subject and be, being a writer or a chess player or a basketball player or, or or whatever it is and what happens to the brain, if everyone is just like relying on machines to get things done, to, to design buildings, to write books, to create business plans, the human brain itself is going to atrophy. We're going to lose our power, the power that we developed over hundreds of thousands of years. That's my main fear about it. And as I said, I could be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. And I don't know because I'm not an expert on the field. So I'm probably making myself sound stupid.
0: I love the humility. Um, And I've had similar thoughts about this. And uh, I I write on the, the sphere of Twitter, of all places. And one of the things that uh, I, one of the things that I wrote that I truly believe is that if you use ChatGPT to write all your content or to write your books or to do anything like that, you're atrophying the the creative muscle inside of you by allowing yeah. a, a technology to do that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, actually, like, I feel like the human brain is like a use it or lose it kind of scenario if you don't use it to create things and to come up with, like, new things and there's infinite ways that you can do this. Sorry.
1: No, well, to give you an example, um, you know, a lot of people are telling me personally that it'd be great for research. Like, they use it as as opposed to, like, a Google search. This is, like, going to be the new search engine, and I'm sure it will be, Um, and I could Robert, you could cut your research time more than half if you use ChatGPT or, or, or whatever the, the new one is. I forget the, the Google one that they have going running now, as a search engine. You know, you can put in much more information and it can bring up chunks of material that you never even thought of. You don't have to go to the library, you don't have to read books. Man, and I go, okay. Well I don't I don't go. I, I think to myself, well, when I go to a library, which I don't do anymore, or I go on Amazon and I kind of scour books and I go through the kind of process of reading a book and then getting a, a reference to another book and reading that one, there's an element of chance involved. It's kind of serendipity. This book, which I read, reveals something that I never thought of before. It sends me to another book, etc., etc. etc. And as I'm reading the book, even if it's irrelevant and it seems like I'm wasting time, I'm actually learning. I'm learning what doesn't work, what isn't good. I'm seeing things that I want, and I go to and I find the material that I need. If I cut all that out, I cut out all the thinking involved, and I flatten the book that I write, right? Because I'm not opening myself up to so many different sources. The problem with my method is it's, it's very labor-intensive. I have to read 20 books to write, you know, 20 pages, which is kind of a waste if you think about it. But if I didn't do that, I, my books would read like, uh, you know, the research, which I think people can feel and, the, and, and how much thinking goes into it would be minimized. And that's going to happen when people get so lazy that they depend on technology instead of taking the steps of going through a process of doing the research of reading the books, of practicing, practicing, practicing.
0: I feel like there's a, a little bit of uh, intuition that goes into your research because it goes from one thread to another. And then all this intuition is compiling the actual story and the theory that you want to put out there in the chapter but if you use technology for that that's like getting handed a McDonald's happy meal. It's yeah. like okay so here's here's a convoluted happy meal. You can have your big mac fries and here's a supersized coke kind of thing. That's very interesting when you when you say something like that. What yeah. Is, so yeah, go sorry ahead. go ahead. No no
1: no no I just, no. I just in, in in the last chapter I wrote uh, which was about getting inside of other species um, which is kind of like the ultimate frontier. Um, I, couldn't, I couldn't find a story that felt right. I wanted to write about octopuses because octopuses are very popular now. There's all sorts of incredible research about it. But I couldn't find the right story. And I was looking and I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking. And then I hear about this woman that wrote this incredible book about hawks. I get really excited and I go look at it. And it's not good enough. But in the back, she references this other book about a peregrine a hawk and it kind of slightly intrigues me. So I go research it. I hit Amazon. Whoa, this is it. This is the book I'm looking for. Right. Mm. Um, all kinds of people are saying it's like a cult. The People who've read this book, they all know this is like the weirdest book ever written about an animal and a human interaction. I get so excited. I get the book and Lo and behold, it is. It's absolutely perfect. And it is the story I end up using. It's this man who's obsessed with this one bird. He spends 15 years of his life tracking them, figuring them out, you know, trying to see what what how they experience the world. It's perfect. If I had done the research that other people are telling me about, if I cut through that all that crap out, I would have never found this absolutely brilliant story, you know. I mean, unless ChatGPT or, or whatever the search engine could have found that for me. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe 15 years from now that would happen. And then, you know, I'll change my mind if I'm still alive.
0: Yeah. And uh, do, you mind not, do you mind me asking what that book is called?
1: It's called The Peregrine. Very simple. The Peregrine. J.A. Baker. Um, yeah. Uh, it's a lot of people are not going to like it. So it's very particular taste, um, because it's, it's very weird. It's like, a, it's, it's hard to explain, but, um, like the filmmaker Werner Herzog, he thought this is the greatest book ever written about animals. And he's sort of obsessed with, it. if you know the literature, this is considered like the cult classic on it. Amazing. So
0: this is, this is incredible. And uh, I, have a, I have a couple of questions from uh, from Twitter. From uh, so I said that I was going to be interviewing you, and uh, more than a hundred responses came back uh, with questions. Oh dear! So I took some of the questions out. Yeah, it's like I don't know if you have time
1: for a hundred questions, but
0: well, no, <laughs> I'm not gonna do a hundred. But I, I picked some out uh, that you might enjoy. So uh, one of them was from. Uh, Studmuffin.eth. Uh, that's his. That's his name. Uh, so he asks, uh, "What? Who is your primary philosophical mentor?" Uh, he names some some people: Machiavelli, um, Sun Tzu, von Clausewitz. Uh, yeah. Who do you turn to?
1: Well, I guess uh, to answer that question, which is not an easy question to answer because I read a lot, I would have to say Friedrich Nietzsche, um, because. When I was in high school, I, I essentially discovered him. I don't remember which was the first book; it might have been "Thus Spoke Zarathustra." I go, well, "This is this is fantastic." I love the kind of energy behind it. This kind of—I hate to use the word because it's so out of fashion but this kind of masculinity of it, the kind of force and the vigor and the—it it was kind of um, almost scary how how far he would go with his ideas. I just got. Totally seduced by Friedrich Nietzsche. And as the years go by and I'm reading more and more books, this is now um, this is almost, God, and I want to reveal my age, it's almost like 50 years later. The, the spell hasn't worn off. I don't look at his books now and go, oh, what was I thinking? I'm just as excited. I learned just as much. I'm quoting him in practically every chapter of The Sublime. Um, and He has books, like they're books that you don't even know about, where they were like compiled from his notes or things that he wrote when he was very young, or his letters. Um, So I'm always discovering new things. And then I go back to things that I read when I was younger, and I go, whoa. So uh, to answer that question, he's my default philosopher. Whenever I'm feeling bored or I need inspiration, opening a page of him is like, drinking a glass of tequila or something, it just, it just sends me off. So that would be it.
0: So this, uh, this question is from Casey Adams. Uh, I believe he had you on his I know podcast. Casey. Hi
1: Casey. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Great guy. Yeah. Uh, so he said, uh, I've had the pleasure of having Robert on my podcast twice. He's incredible. I think it would be fascinating to hear his perspective on health and fitness. Um and uh and this is in the context of um of how you're approaching it at this very moment of your life.
1: Well, um uh so I've always been very uh in an exercise addict. Um I noticed since I was young, I always had kind of heart issues and I knew that, that that's kind of my weak point. And so exercising was my way to get rid of the stress and strengthen my heart. I've been exercising since I was in my, since I was in college, virtually every day. Even when I'm sick, I do some kind of exercise. So I'm addicted to the kind of aerobic rush that I get from it. Right, and you know sometimes it's there's limbs, Sometimes I make myself sick. I go too far in it. Um, mm. But since I've had my stroke, I've had to make a major readjustment. Unfortunately, so a big part of my um, practice was hiking in these beautiful areas. I live next to a park that's absolutely beautiful with these hills, etc. And then I would swim almost every two or three, three days. I would take a very long swim, usually a mile, mile and a half. And that's without stopping. And then I was into mountain biking a lot. And then I did other, other things. I can't, you know, I can't do any of that. I can't, I can't do my swimming anymore, which is the major um, lack in my life. I can't run. I can't hike. It's depressing, man. I don't want to. I don't want to make you feel bad. But I don't want to make you all cry. But it really has been the worst thing. And so um, I've discovered. I got a uh, a recumbent bike. Um, it's a bicycle that uh, you might be familiar with. It's like a basically a souped-up tricycle. <laughs> Just call it what it is, you know. So I can I can ride that, and I got like the lightest version of one i can cuz there are these really big hills around here so i want to. it's much harder to ride this bike than a normal bike cuz you don't have the power of, of that you normally generate through your legs and so i've discovered that and i'm addicted to it and i do it you know almost every other day i'm i'm taking really long bicycle rides and then um, i'm doing strength training and i have a therapist but I've had to learn how to be much more patient with myself because in the beginning I kept, I thought I was so dumb. I thought after a year after my stroke, I'll be swimming again, man. I'll have, I'll get back to it. No, I can't. I mean, I'd go back to the pool now, but I'm basically, I can do what a four-year-old can do in the water right now. I have to be so patient. I have to say, don't get down on yourself. There are people who had strokes who are not even even trying these things you're doing well you know give yourself a pat on the back it's it's been difficult it's really been like um it's teaching me my own limits and the things that i'm not good at and my impatience and how i feel like i have to push through everything and so it's it's now exercise is like rewiring my brain is changing my patterns of reacting in my emotions because it's making me slow down and and go at it in a different way so that's sort of the alteration in my in my fitness program
0: do you ever do you ever find yourself because it seems like you're pretty vigorous um that where you are right now that you have to pull yourself back a little bit because you could just as easily kind of push yourself past that that limit because of you know your your past experience with exercise
1: well probably and it might have led to my stroke itself, the fact that I pushed myself mm-hmm. too hard. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had to do that. And um, the problem is uh, I have this one bike ride near where I live where it's it's a two-hour ride, and it's really beautiful. I don't see any people. There's no cars. I'm out in nature. Like, I love being out in nature. It's like the greatest I come back from it and I'm feeling great, but the next day I go, whoa, God, man, I'm so tired. My back's hurting. My foot's hurting. You know, I can't, so I have to realize I can't do that very often. I have to kind of space it out. So yeah, I've had to learn how to cut back and not push myself as hard as I used to. On the other hand, when you, you know, what happens when you get older is you tell yourself, oh, I can't do that anymore. I can't ride a horse anymore. I can't ride a bike anymore. People see me on this bicycle and they can't believe the risks that I'm taking because I'm like really low to the ground and cars are like zipping by me. I could easily get hit. When you get older, you get conservative. And that's how you age. That's what ages you. So the ability to still take risks, to still to push yourself, I think is a good thing. It's just sometimes you can go a little too far with it, as you point out. Incredible.
0: Um, all right. This is uh, from John Finkel. And uh, I don't when know you come God. across, too... you don't know John? No. Hi, John. Oh, he's he's a, he's an author. Oh.
1: Um, oh, maybe I should know. I'm sorry. I should have said that.
0: Like a sports, I think he does like sports biographies or something like that. Oh, oh. I, I probably am doing him a disservice right now probably <laughs> by, by, by cutting him down like that. But yeah, sports biographies most likely. Um, so yes, uh, when you come across two stories or anecdotes that make the same point for a book, how do you decide which one to use and which one to cut? Well,
1: that's a great question. And only a, a fellow writer would ask such a question. And that does happen often. So when you read biographies, you know, um, people sometimes will take the same event and interpret it one way and another person will interpret it another way. You know, one writer will see this particular figure in a slightly negative light, like Napoleon. A lot of people found him horrible. Then another writer will kind of glorify him. And so how do you decide between the two? Well, the first thing is you have biases. You can't deny that, right? So I know that I'm biased towards Napoleon. I I know the negative side of his character. It's that I'm aware of it but I find him personally, it's the boy in me that finds him incredibly exciting and heroic in some way. I understand my biases, right? And I have to work against my biases. So I deliberately find material that will sort of show me what, you know, the opposite side of it so I can confront that and deal with it and try and interpret it. But one thing I realize is, After reading literally thousands of biographies by this point, I know the difference between a writer who is trying to get at the truth, who's trying to show the human being there, warts and all the good side and the bad side, as opposed to a writer who's grinding an axe, who has an Mm axe to grind, who's coming at it from a political point of view, kind of imposing the 21st century viewpoint on some character in the past. I can feel it. I can smell it unlike Sherlock Holmes that way, I can smell it, you know, I know when that's going on. And those kind of writers, when they come upon the same facts that I've come upon in another book, I won't dismiss it because I sense a political kind of um, you know biases on their part coming to the story. And I want to get at what actually happened. And so it's a process. It's not like I have a formula, but I, I look at the this particular event that may be described in two different ways, and I try and go, if I'm in that moment, if I'm Napoleon in that moment, what does that mean, right? What is it like for me to experience that in their, in their shoes? that's a terrible thing for a historian to do. And I would be breaking all of the laws and the taboos about being objective, but the greatest biographers in the world, including the, um, you know, some of my favorites, the, the, the Lyndon Johnson writer, for instance, they do that time and time again, they get the, they get inside of the character and they understand what they're like from that particular moment. And so, um, you know, I, 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 look at it. Um, I balance it. And the main thing is I look for those particular biographers who I sense are trying to make this person come to life for good or for bad. And are not coming at from it with like, you know, a particular perspective that they're trying to portray this person as negatively, usually.
0: Awesome. And, uh, this will be the, the final question. And, uh, and this what has been a, a fascinating uh, conversation. I do appreciate your time. Yeah, so I wanted to ask you, actually this is a personal question for me. Uh, so you've uh, you lived with uh, your your cat Brutus for about 19 years. Um, he was a very special part of uh, your life. I, I actually was very interested in why you named him Brutus in the first place and um (laughs) and also uh what is the name of uh your cat and what does he mean to you at this very moment in time
1: well um i had a cat prior to brutus whose name was boris and Mm -hmm. boris was an amazing cat i i reference him in the 48 laws of power because he was kind of the cat who was with me every single day as i wrote the book and then when boris died which was a Pretty traumatic, and I think 2001, we got another cat, and I'm similar to how Boris looked. Instead of being gray and white, he was black and white. And we want we can't name him Boris the Second, you know. <laughs> but as somebody who loves like ancient literature, and I my major in college was Greek and Latin, mm-hmm. we kind of gravitated towards a Latin name. And so Boris became Brutus, right? And his full name was Brutus Gaius Maximus Ignax. (laughs) So we gave gave him a full Roman name, which we didn't usually call him. that. Sometimes we would call him Ignax. But Brutus Gaius Maximus Ignax was his name. And um, he ended up filling the name because he was this big cat, you know, he was the bully of our neighborhood. He he died, unfortunately, a couple of years ago. It was like a horrible experience because I was so close to that cat. Mm. All the other cats in the neighborhood lived in mortal fear of Brutus when <laughs> he was out on the street. He was calm, he was getting in cat fights. People would tell me they wouldn't let their cats out at the same time. as, as Brutus. He he was like an emperor. He like totally ruled this neighborhood. And then he, you know, you say cats have nine lives. So many times we thought he died. He disappeared. One particular time, he like was gone for like 48 hours. We thought this is the end of Brutus. We were so sad. And I was supposed to leave in like two days for a, a book tour to Brazil. And then we were walking at night and Anna heard a faint, faint, which she thought was a meow. He was trapped under a house. And I leaped over the fence of that house because I was so excited to find that cat that meant so much to me that I fell on a rock and I broke my foot. And and then we found the cat and we brought him home. And he was fine, but I had a broken foot and I had to cancel my trip to Brazil because I couldn't move. Um, but he lived through that and he could have easily, would have never seen him again if we never heard that tiny little meow. So he was like a mythical figure. He was constantly skirting courting death and he survived i would see him out in the street cars would be passing he managed to cross the street that cat was like a god to me and then <laughs> um, and then you know he he, he died he's 19 but you know that's 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 life uh, we have two cats now one of whose name is jacques he's very much a very french cat that's why we named him that whenever we see him we always think of of some character from french literature He's got a very, I don't know, Parisian air about him. But the other cat is Claudius. And Claudius is huge. He's like 19 pounds. He's the fattest cat I've ever had. And he is a bully. He is dominant. He is an emperor. You know, he's got that Latin, that ancient Roman feel about him. And so now it was the first time I ever had two cats. But uh, I just love observing them. I love, I can't live without animals. I mean, I'd love to have a dog in some point. Well, I'll have a dog when I feel better and I can take it for a walk. But to live without an animal in my house would be, I don't know, it just doesn't seem right. So I'm always going to have a cat as a muse, as a source of inspiration for all of my books. And I've, you know, I've, I'm working on my eighth book all the other seven I've dedicated to my cats over the years because that's just, that's just, I can't avoid it. Have you ever
0: dedicated one to your wife?
1: Yes, I have.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say just the cats get the love. Maybe, maybe not the wife. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's great. I know, she understands. Okay.
1: She, she, she shares that. She would understand if I never mentioned her and only the cats, but yeah.
0: Yeah. Incredible. And, uh, Again, thank you, Robert, for your time. It is an honor to uh, speak to you. Your books have changed my life and the lives of millions of others. And um, and yeah, it's uh, your books are literally the only ones that I reread on a regular basis. So just want to say thank you very much for putting the amount of time that you do into your work and, um, and putting so much of yourself into the work as well. Thank you well, so much from, well, I'm from gonna, all of us.
1: I'm also going to pay you a compliment, Dan. So I was complaining the other day that on in many interviews I'm answering the same questions over and over and over again. And I, I just wish sometimes I could get you actually ask questions that I've never been asked before, nice. which is fair which is um, a high compliment from me. You know, so I got to talk about like the stuff about my cats. There've been other things about Phil Jackson, et cetera. So kudos to you for mixing it up a little bit. So
0: Thank you, no. thank you very much. That's uh, I, I totally uh, accept that compliment, and uh, and yeah, that means a lot. Come well, it shows me. that you put uh, some
1: thought into it before we did the interview. You just weren't, you know, yeah. you, you did your homework. You were, you know, you didn't go to ChatGPT yeah. to give you the no, the so much. no ChatGPT. <laughs> okay, so. did not did not use ChatGPT on this
0: interview whatsoever. Okay. Um, yes. Thank you, Robert. Really appreciate well. it. Yeah. And, uh, and when does the book, the sublime or the law of the sublime come out or when are you planning it for it? Well, come out? I know it's a, it's a loaded question.
1: I'm halfway huh? through. So give okay. me another couple of years. I'm sorry to say, okay. be patient. Okay. Hopefully it's worth it. So, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting there.
0: I have sure. no doubt that it's going to be worth it. Uh-huh. And um, I'm wishing you nothing but great health and, uh, and good ideas. So, so yeah, thank you so much Robert. Thank you. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you again for listening to the Dango show. We have some amazing episodes coming your way, so make sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If you're already subscribed, and today's episode hit home for you, please share this episode with someone that you know could benefit from listening. Take care and see you every week on your favorite podcast app.